0: This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3 The Classical World. Episode 6 Dark Age and Archaic Greece. When we left Greece back in Volume 2, we left it in tatters. These were the lands of the mighty Mycenaeans of the 2nd millennium BCE. Quite what's happened, we cannot be sure. During the 13th century BCE, the Mycenaeans were a dominant warrior society who had achieved superiority over their successful Minoan neighbours on the island of Crete in the centuries preceding. Everything was looking good. However, the end of the 13th century BCE was the time of the Late Bronze Age collapse and the Mycenaean Greeks were one of the more famous casualties of this period. Many of the mainland palaces and citadels of the Mycenaeans were destroyed by fire and left In ruin. The familiar Linear B writing system of the Mycenaeans disappeared which demonstrated the demise of an organized society. Some Peloponnesian scriptures suggest that there may have been invaders looking to move into the lands of the Mycenaeans but we don't really have anything to suggest that this was a definite contributing factor to the fall of the Mycenaeans. A study of the seismological data of the region of the Balkan and Anatolian peninsulas suggests an unusually large number of earthquakes in a 50-year period around the year 1200 BCE. Mycenaean culture did not disappear suddenly like the Hittites did during this period. The demise was gradual over the course of a century following the Late Bronze Age Collapse. By around the year 1070 BCE there was nothing left of Mycenaean Greece. Aspects of Mycenaean culture need to be discussed when considering what could have happened in and around the Peloponnese after the Late Bronze Age Collapse. The preamble to this period is in Episode 24 of Volume 2. It was during this episode that we investigated the cultural aspects of the Mycenaean people who were essentially palace builders. One of the differences between the palaces of the Mycenaeans and the palaces of the Minoans, those people who the Mycenaeans may have taken the palatial culture from in turn, is the fact that the Mycenaeans felt it necessary to build significant defences around their palaces, so they clearly felt more threatened by their neighbours than the Minoans did. This suggests two things to me. Firstly, that relationships between cultures became more volatile in this area of the world as the second millennium BCE advanced, and secondly, that societies were more exposed to aggression when based on mainland Europe than the islands of the Mediterranean. We spoke at length about the burial culture of the Mycenaeans, which appeared to adjust over time, and as the Mycenaeans became wealthier and more powerful during this period of their regime. The Mycenaeans used to create large mass graves filled with grave goods. However, this practice altered after 1100 BCE, when we are much more likely to see single graves which points towards a decline in the prosperous, large palatial society life and a much more humble culture with less ceremony and regard for status. Linear B writing disappears at around this time which could suggest a cultural displacement and a decline in organised society. It is clear that people were still living in the south of the Balkan Peninsula but there seemed to be a loss of stratified society where during the Mycenaean period there was evidence of an elite class of monarchs and an administrative culture. This suggests that the culture of the Balkan Peninsula became less centralised as people would have relied more on subsistence as a consequence. The lack of linear B writing and any decipherable writing from this post-Mycenaean period of Greek history leads us to call this period the Dark Ages of Greece. Pottery is something that the Mycenaeans are well known for so we should investigate evidence of pottery from the Greek Dark Ages for clues also. We do have pottery from this period but there is a clear decline in the quality of the pots and the designs on the surface of the pots. It is almost as if people did not have the time or the equipment to emulate the Mycenaean ceramic ware. Pots were much less symmetrical, which points towards people no longer using potters' wheels and starting to create pots simply by hand. The decoration appears to be created with less skill than the ceramics from the Mycenaean period. We don't have much evidence of architecture, no less the impressive works of the Mycenaeans, including the Cyclopean Walls that amazed future Greek societies with their sheer magnitude. They were called Cyclopean Walls due to the fact that future Greek cultures believed that only the one-eyed giant Cyclopes could have built them. The lack of subsequent architecture demonstrated that those classical Greeks who were the next significant culture of these lands could not relate to the Mycenaean abilities, which demonstrates two things. Firstly, that the Mycenaeans were extremely capable and powerful. Secondly, that the decline of the Mycenaean culture was not only abrupt, but considerable, as there is no evidence left behind suggesting how the Mycenaeans achieved what they did. The Mycenaean elite must have either been killed or completely migrated away from the area. Maybe they were part of the migrating sea peoples of the 12th century BCE, possibly those who went to Egypt and Philistia. Hence the presence of ceramics that resemble the Mycenaean style excavated in Philistia dating to after the late Bronze Age collapse During the Mycenaean episode we made reference to scriptures discovered at the Mycenaean settlement of Pylos recognising the fact that the residents of Pylos were concerned about potential invasions by land and by sea The most popular theory about who posed this threat to the Mycenaeans is the Dorians who are believed to have potentially have been based further north and migrated southwards into the abandoned lands of the Mycenaeans. They may have even conquered these lands from the remnants of Mycenaean society which could be a good explanation as to why aspects such as Linear B writing did not survive this period. The problem is that we don't have any firm evidence of Dorian dominance of the Peloponnese during this period, so we cannot assume this. We do know that there was Dorian presence in the Peloponnese going into the re-emergence of advanced society as they are recorded as such. So if we round up what little we do know, then we can see a steep decline of Mycenaean culture during the 12th century BCE, followed by a complete disappearance in the 11th century BCE. People were still living in the south of the Balkan Peninsula, but there is no evidence of an identity or a centralized society or a monarchy. There is much more to suggest a return to subsistence and humbly sized collections of people. So although it is very mysterious how we arrived at this situation of Dark Age Greece after such an incredible period of history, following the Mycenaeans and the Minoans, we now need to look forward to what happened next. Alphabet. One of the biggest aspects when studying this period in Greek history is the introduction of a new style of writing. Now, on the face of it, this may not be so surprising if we consider that the Mycenaeans abandoned their lands or were removed from them, taking their Linear B writing system with them. However, we should not forget that we discovered that the Mycenaean language is an archaic form of Greek. So the Mycenaean language survived this period. This means that people must have continuously populated the Balkan Peninsula. Although the language survived, the writing system did not. Instead, the next emergence of writing in Greek lands after the Linear B system is an alphabetic script based on the Phoenician alphabet. This would be the ancestor of today's Greek alphabet. However, there was one vital change between the Phoenician alphabet and the Greek alphabet and that is the creation of vowels. This would suit the ancient Greek language which is an Indo-European language much better. So now we have a link between the language and writing system of ancient Greece and modern Greece. The language migrated to Greece with the ancestors of the Mycenaeans. How the alphabet migrated is a little more mysterious. We have to recognize that around the year 1000 BCE The Phoenicians were quite active in and around the Mediterranean and Greek islands and lands would have certainly been in the range of Phoenician seafarers. Whether it would have been probable that Phoenicians themselves decided to migrate to the lands of the Greeks is highly debatable with no firm evidence to back up this theory other than the presence of a closely related alphabet emerging in the coming centuries. Certainly by the 8th century BCE we can find firm evidence of a migrated alphabet which resembles the Phoenician alphabet closely. Local variations depending on the specific Greek land you lived on was apparent showing that it was not standardised. Future historians such as Herodotus and other Roman scribes could not agree on the story of Greek alphabet origins though so we may never know the whole truth. It was after the successful establishment of a new Greek writing system that it became possible for storytellers to begin writing about what happened during the Greek Dark Ages, from the fall of the Mycenaean Empire to the reemergence of Greek civilization. And they did this with many works romantically telling stories of this era, and we have touched upon them during this podcast series already. The most famous named writer for this period is Homer whose stories described in his most famous works The Iliad and The Odyssey talk of a time near the end of Mycenaean dominance and a conflict between the Mycenaeans and the Trojans. When these works are associated with other similar works of this time they combine to give us a narrative of what we refer to as the Trojan War and something we focused on back in volume two, episode 25. Homer's works were written in a form of Greek which is called Homeric Greek and based on the Ionian variant of the Greek language. These variations should be easy for us to respect due to one very important point that we should always be ready to remind ourselves when discussing this unique part of the world. We talk of Greek lands and Greek language and the Greek alphabet. Greece is just a geographical area here with no united identity. Regional variations are not a surprise because these societies of Greek lands were not one united society but many different and small societies which is consistent with the theory of post-Mycenaean subsistence The works of Homer tell us a story of war which involved Greek deities or gods that have no other real historical foundation other than in these future works and on a fundamental level not give us anything firmly believable in terms of a historical narrative due to its mythological and mysterious nature. In fact, there is no firm evidence that Homer was a real individual, other than future writers talking of him being the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So you will not find a general belief in Homer's existence among scholars, let alone the validity of his stories. So once again, it is a topic for you and your own mind to decide for yourself how true any of it could be. Ancient Olympic Games So let's focus on what we believe is likely to be true and try to focus on the period when Greece was rising from the lows of the post-Mycenaean Dark Age. We recognise that there was a significant rise in the knowledge of Greek activity and societal growth during the 8th century BCE. A date of 776 BCE is popularly offered by historians as the date of the first recorded Olympic Games. So we will look closely at what the Olympic Games are and see what we can learn about Greece as a consequence. The Olympic Games which in this context are referred to as the ancient Olympic Games to distinguish them from the huge modern event that the world is much more familiar with, was originally a small event where individuals would race against each other to impress the Greek god Zeus. So already we've learned that we have to be careful due to the reference to mythology. The date of 776 is a retrospective date based on more recent knowledge and information. So it is very possible that 776 BCE is an incorrect date for the first ever Olympic Games. However, the fact that it is feasible in the minds of ancient Greeks of a later age must mean that it is probably not far from the truth. Otherwise, there would surely be a definite alternative theory. So if it didn't take place in 776 BCE, then it probably isn't miles away from the truth, even if Zeus wasn't actually there. The event was held every four years at a remote location called Olympia, which was otherwise a place of agriculture. We know that the games continued until the fourth century CE, so they actually lasted for longer than a thousand years and at its peak it attracted tens of thousands of spectators to watch multiple sporting competitions. Many individuals would gather at Olympia and huge religious ceremonies and trade fairs would take place as could be expected by such large gatherings. Events in the very earliest Olympic Games were restricted to running events but the Games would grow to include combat sports such as wrestling and boxing. The competitors would hail from various city-states of Greek lands. Normally, we would find that there could be hostile relationships between the city-states of Greek lands, but these hostilities were put to one side during the Olympic Games. Some Olympic events were depicted on pottery. And pottery is one of the most significant factors of the timelines, this period of Greek history. Pottery. So we mentioned Mycenaean pottery and how the quality of pottery declined after the disappearance of the Mycenaeans in the early 11th century BCE. Excavated ceramics are one of the only clues that we have about what happened during the Greek Dark Ages the quality of ceramic ware started to improve after the year 1000 BCE, but we also start to see aspects that are distinct according to where you go in Greek lands. We shouldn't be too surprised about this because of the return to a more subsistence lifestyle. Previously things would have been somewhat centralised by the Mycenaean rulers, but with no evidence of a mighty monarchy and natural assumption would be to suggest that small villages that perhaps had governors were more likely. The proto-geometric style of pottery that initially emerged around 1000 BCE is somewhat relevant to the settlement of Athens initially. Some historians would suggest that this is one of the first signs of Greek society rebuilding itself. Athens had a lot going for it, in terms of it being at the forefront of a Greek revival. Those Peloponnesian settlements that had been important centres of Mycenaean cultures such as Mycenae and Pylos had succumbed to the late Bronze Age collapse destruction, but there doesn't seem to be evidence of the destruction of Athens. Athens certainly suffered an economic decline thanks to the fall of the Mycenaean Empire but its geographical location coupled with the strategical advantage of the Acropolis giving the settlement some great vantage points was surely key to it being one of the first places to show signs of an upturn in fortunes. The proto-geometric style would unsurprisingly make way for the geometric style for which the settlement of Corinth is mentioned as a place where this style of pottery is known to have been created. The Athenians would then improve their own skills, but this would demonstrate distinct cultures of particular cities and city-states of Greek lands. It may even point towards competition between the city-states, which is one of the most important factors of the Olympic Games, where competitors would represent their chosen city-state. However, rather than call these settlements and areas of influence city-states, we actually refer to them as polis. Polis Polis is the plural of the word polis, which in turn is the Greek word for city. Polis is a word that we have come across time and time again during this podcast whether it be when we talk of large necropolis burial sites or high ground acropolis constructions also with the names of places such as Hieracompolis in Egypt and Persepolis in Persia this tells us a couple of things in the first instance The modern English language has borrowed a lot from the words of the Greek language. Secondly, a lot of our history is given to us by the writings of Greek people who named ancient cities themselves rather than use the local names. Hierocompolis was called Nechen by the Egyptians. Persepolis was called Parsa by the Persians. The main reason why we use the Greek names is purely a familiarity thing. Reporting the most commonly known names makes the information easier to digest and triangulate with other sources. But often we see, with history, that name revisions can take place among scholars who wish to show more respect to the local traditions of the respective areas. The polis of Greece was similar to the city-states of Asiatic lands in that they were a centralised area which contained a city at its centre with an area of influence surrounding it. The Poles were urbanised which demonstrates a revitalisation of human society since the Dark Ages followed the Mycenaean period. This has led me personally to question exactly how much of the revitalisation of Greece we owe to the Phoenicians. When we consider that the ancient Phoenician city of Carthage was established in North Africa in 814 BCE it is feasible to suggest that some Phoenicians were keen to emigrate from their Levantine lands and it could have had something to do with the growth of the Assyrian Empire having an overbearing influence on Phoenician trade but this is purely my guess. If it were the case, then it may explain how Phoenician traders potentially carried the Phoenician alphabet over to Greek lands. But the counter-argument for this theory is the fact that the Semitic language of the Phoenicians did not supplant the Greek language being spoken in Greek lands, which descended from the Mycenaeans as proven by those late Bronze Age collapse baked linear B tablets. There were definitely international influences migrating and integrating during the 9th century BCE in and around the lands of the Mediterranean though and Greek lands were certainly not excluded from this. The Mediterranean and Near East lands had entered the Iron Age by this time. This was a period where iron came into mainstream use. Whether this be by choice due to the sheer strength of ironware compared to bronzeware or whether this was imposed upon those societies by the weakness of the tin trade, robbing copper for its most common bronze alloy partner, we can determine that the area around the settlement of Athens was certainly familiar with ironwork around this period, which suggests that Athens was a significant place for Mediterranean trade, and this should come as no surprise when you consider its favourable geographic location as a seaport facing into the Aegean Sea. This also explains the apparent rise in activity at the settlements of Lefkandi on the island of Uvia and Knossos on the island of Crete. So we can target this period as a time when Greek city-states, which we refer to as poleis, started to re-emerge as populations started to grow and succeed. What happened here, we can probably compare to the emergence and success of city states elsewhere in the known world up to this point. Agriculture, as ever, was a major part of the ability of polis to grow, and successful government of these polys was vital. So, this is not completely unlike ancient Mesopotamia before the Age of Empires, when city states would have their own identities and be ruled. By their own Kings. Pottery from each of the polis was distinct according to which polis you were in, and even the alphabet would have its own intricacies according to which polis you were in. Archaic Greece So we have explored a few things about the Dark Ages and the Archaic period of Greek history. So now let us take a closer look at the development of society and its politics. This is going to be an extremely important thing if we want to understand the nature of the Greek people during this period. We already know that a powerful settlement was emerging at Athens that was beginning to carve out an area of influence around it, quite like a city-state. Two small but closely positioned villages discovered in the Peloponnese may have been settled during the Dark Age period by migrating Dorians, who took advantage of the apparent abandonment of the Peloponnese by the Mycenaeans after the Late Bronze Age collapse. These two villages are suggested to be the origin of what would become the polis of Sparta. On the large island of Euboea, two settlements were populated by Ionian migrants coming across the Aegean Sea from the Anatolian Peninsula. These two settlements were called Chalcis and Eretria and were mentioned in the Iliad as being rival cities. These Eubians of these lands would quickly start establishing trade routes during the 8th century BCE, setting up trade ports as far west as Cumae and Regium in the lands of the modern country of Italy. It was clear that the different regions of Greek lands were growing at a rapid rate during the 8th century BCE and inevitable treading on each other's toes in their quest for wealth and status over one another. After the Spartans established dominance of the southern Peloponnese, they too would set about colonising the nearby Italian peninsula by setting up a colony called Taras which would come to be known as Taranto and they would do this towards the end of the 8th century BCE. During the 7th century BCE even more colonies were created on the Italian peninsula which would eventually lead to the Romans referring to the lands of the southern Italian peninsula as Magna Grecia or Great Greece. So I'm going to end this mysterious podcast episode by going back to Athens as I want to pay more attention to the political setup of places such as Athens and its relationship with democracy in the next episode. What I can say in summary is that because contemporary writing during the Dark Ages and the Archaic Period are so scant we have to rely on those later texts written by Greek authors of a later time to tell us what was going on in these lands. So for example we have spoken a lot about Herodotus who is a 5th century BCE Greek who wrote The Histories as a means to present a story of the history of the known world up to his lifetime. However, in a recent interview I did with Nick Barksdale of the YouTube channel The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages Nick pointed out that some people refer to him as the Father of Lies, and that is key to our acceptance of any Greek works that retrospectively tell the story of this period. According to these kinds of traditional texts, Athens was ruled by kings throughout the Mycenaean, Dark Age and Archaic periods. The Olympic Games started in 776 BCE, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey and Romulus became the first ruler of Rome after being raised by a she-wolf. All of this is retrospective storytelling and modern historians doubt the veracity of it all. So we must be very careful when telling the story of this period purely because it's that traditional old act of us marrying ancient texts to archaeological discoveries and trying to find the best fit possible in order to create a history as close to the truth as possible. So as is the tradition of this podcast, what does your imagination think happened during this period of Greek history? with all the evidence to hand. Your version is just as important as anyone's because regardless of anyone's expertise none of us were there to witness it and therefore none of us can be 100% sure. Next week we will take a closer look at Athens and its political development after this period. Well, there we have it. That's me starting to tread on the toes of one of my podcasting heroes, Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. I hope that if he does listen to this, that he doesn't think that I've butchered the legacy of ancient Greece too badly. But I'll tell you what, what a fascinating story ancient Greece is. And we're going to continue it next week with the first of a two-parter about Athens, such was the, well, so much went into Athens at the start, and there was so many dramatic turns and twists, and so much documentation of all of this, that we really see some of the first fundamentals of ancient politics in detail from this period. So we're going to start exploring that, and I have to admit, it's a fascinating view of how society changed, and how society had to change due to the pressures um, that were on it. It was either a case of having to accept certain things in order to survive, and we're gonna we're gonna view that next week, or the, at least the beginnings of it. And I promise you, it's going to be an absolutely fascinating story. Now, if you want to support the podcast, then by all means, you can. Um, we have a Patreon account, and there are many History of the World podcast patrons already. And anyone that makes a contribution towards the podcast becomes a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And when you remember the History of the World podcast Illuminati, you can qualify for gifts from the podcast. And uh, if you're wondering the sort of things you can get, uh, we had a special post from Nick Barksdale of the history of... um, or the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel. And uh, he posted uh, some of the gifts that I sent across the Atlantic to him on uh, the Facebook page. We reposted those on the Facebook page, so you can go and have a look at those. And also... Matty Yokimo, who's been a long-time patron of the podcast, who, um, you know, we value his support so much here at the History of the World podcast, he has now uh, earned the right to commission his own podcast episode. And he's already told me which subject he wants to have a podcast episode on. And it's going to be a little bit of work for me. But I'm up for the challenge, and it should be an extremely interesting episode. Now, I'm not going to give the game away at the moment, but over the coming weeks, we will find out more. So stay tuned, and I'll let you know more about that. But if you want to uh, get free gifts, and if you want to be able to commission your own podcast episodes, then by all means come to the Patreon page and start making contributions. You can do so for as little as $1 a month. If you can't stretch to a financial contribution, then you can still help and support the podcast. Just simply go to the forum on which you listen to the podcast and rate and review the podcast. Now, this leads me on very nicely to the Apple Podcasts reviews for the History of the World podcast. I'm going to try and read through them all very quickly now, so bear with me. Uh, The first one is from HistoryFan389 from the United States of America, who's put great podcasts. I'm addicted to history podcasts, and I have to say, this is one of the best ones I've listened to. The audio is great, and his voice is very balanced. He throws in just enough to let us know he's a real human being, but sticks to the content. The content is in-depth, and even though I've read many of these topics, many times there's always something he throws in that I didn't think of or hadn't heard of before this is a good listen to on a walk driving or even falling asleep oh thank i've fallen asleep i've fallen asleep to this a few times oh dear it gets worse doesn't it and then i had to listen to the podcast again because i didn't want to miss anything i have high standards especially for history podcasts so i listened to the first few podcasts skeptically after the first three to four episodes i am hooked Thank you so much, History Fan. I was only teasing you when I was uh, having a laugh there, but um, yeah, it did sound funny, didn't it? Anyway, uh, Jolene B from the USA has put wonderful homeschool supplement. I use this podcast for the days where we have appointments or things outside the home that take up our time, so my 17 year old can get his required credits. He loves the podcast and it is very well informed, interesting, and complete. Thanks to this podcast, he can listen in the car and apply what he's learned to what he reads at home in his textbook. Um, or he learns more than the textbook at times too. What a fantastic compliment, thank you. Um, Dr Brett 47 from the USA has put great historical podcast, I just love this podcast, I stumbled across it looking for information on the Assyrians and got sucked into the whole thing, his delivery is no frills but that's exactly what I want most of the time, I can't wait to finish the whole series. Power Reviews from the USA has put great podcasts, easy to listen to at night, no distracting music blaring in the background, excellent information, great all round if you enjoy history. Uh, M Goodwin from Australia has put incredible, ambitious in scope, meticulously researched and incredibly interesting, this is the history podcast you are looking for. Uh, Dave uh, Heaster. From the United States of America. Amazing work. I love listening during my work commute. Very easy to follow, even at 1.5 speed. It's not the first time I've been accused of that. Makes history very clear and easy to digest. Wonderful podcast. Bravo. Uh, Bush Help from Australia has um, put Peter Canberra. Excellent. The best history podcast. Uh, have just returned from tours of Turkey, Egypt and Middle East this podcast from Chris is the icing on the cake brings the whole trip to life and gives me more knowledge thank you Chris what a fantastic trip Turkey, Egypt and the Middle East wonderful Um, Peter Delaney uh, Ireland from Ireland unsurprisingly Uh, thanks for all the great work fantastic history podcast my personal favourite the delivery style of the narration is excellent reminiscent of Adam Curtis giving you time to think on what you are hearing. Thanks, Pete. Alan from Canada, from Canada, has put a Canadian review. What a fantastic podcast, well-researched and exceptionally scripted. I have been meaning to leave a review as I've started listening recently, and it was only today that I heard the call out to Canadian listeners for a review. Here you are. Well... That's it. I've, um, I've rushed through them. There were rather a lot of them, so I apologise if you get sick of listening to them. But, you know, I just simply like to uh, acknowledge those people that have been kind enough to take the time to review. I think you do all deserve a mention, and I, and I am so, so grateful to you all for your support and your kind words. So, thank you so much. Now, 've uh, I've gone on for a bit so I'm gonna um, I'm not gonna go into anything else this week um I'm just gonna wrap up now and say next week we're gonna be venturing into Athens and um, I'm sure you'll love it I've really enjoyed writing about it so I hope you uh, enjoy listening to it just as much anyway that's it for this week have a fantastic week everyone and I hope to see you again next time Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us